could uh, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John if you're not already there. If you're visiting with us, we are delighted you're here with us. We uh, work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line upon line, paragraph upon paragraph. And so, uh, some time ago we started at the beginning of the Gospel of John. We've made our way to chapter 17, and we are in the middle of a prayer of Jesus for his disciples, and ultimately for all of those who would believe in Jesus through the the message of the disciples. This is sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he intentionally prays it out loud, and John intentionally records it for our good. John chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is God's holy, ancient, inspired word. Let's pray. Oh God, that you would open our eyes, that we might see the truth of your word, that we might see Jesus and his glory more clearly and that you would grant us joy in you as we see all the robust reasons we have for having joy. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. There are many temptations all around us to be robbed of our joy. In fact, there's many reasons around us for us to lament and be sorrowful. We're watching the collapse of this economy. We're seeing the erosion of many religious freedoms that we've enjoyed for centuries in this great republic. On a personal level, you may be experiencing a deterioration in health. You may be experiencing the reality of wayward children or grandchildren. Some of you who are in the throes of child rearing can feel overwhelmed with the reality of these sinful little children who keep ruining your plans. 
about to head back to a new school year. I know many of you homeschooling mothers are feeling overwhelmed with the reality of educating your children. There's many temptations for you to be robbed of your joy. But yet joy is something that is commanded of us in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul, writing from the posture of being incarcerated, I'm not sure how your week has gone, but you're not incarcerated, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. He commands the recipients of the letter to the Philippians to rejoice. Now, as you know, if you're a student of Scripture, you realize that joy in the Bible is not some kind of giddiness. In fact, in this passage, Jesus speaks in verse 13 that he tells us that he prays out loud. He's saying these things in the world so that they, his disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. And when we consider the joy of Jesus, it wasn't a, a, a kind of a giddiness, but it was a sustained happiness in the midst of a fallen world. A sustained joy that, that he wanted his disciples to experience and to have. It is proper for believers in the Lord Jesus to have joy. In fact, Jerry Bridges, not to be confused with Jeff Bridges, the actor, he says in his book, The Practice of Godliness, to be joyless is to dishonor God and to deny His love and control over our lives. It is a practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us to say to the watching world, our God reigns. Bridges very pointedly says, for a Christian to lack joy is a kind of practical atheism. So this morning, I want us to experience this joy of Jesus to the full. Just by tracing the words of Jesus in this prayer. And again, this is a prayer on the evening of Jesus' execution that he prays out loud so that his disciples would hear and listen to feel his heartbeat as he talks to the Father. And he specifically tells us that he says these things so that we would have joy. And so let's look at three robust truths so that we would have joy. The first is Jesus' particular prayer. His particular prayer. And when I say particular prayer, I mean in distinction from a general prayer. The particularity of this prayer is demonstrated in the particularity of whom Jesus prays for. Notice verse 9. Jesus says, He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for particular people. Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of those whom... Uh, I'm sorry. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says here, who he's not praying for. He's not praying for those in the world who are not part of those given ones out of the world. Now this is a tough 
pill for us to swallow, right? I mean, we're Americans. We believe in equality for all, right? You know, we read this and we think, Jesus, that's not nice. You're not praying for everybody without exception? I didn't say it. Jesus said it, okay? And, and this is important because we live in a world, I would say, in a kind of an evangelical subculture where the theology of the day is God's nice, you're nice, be nice. But that's not exactly the God of Scripture. The God of the Bible, and we see as demonstrated in the person of Jesus, He's praying for his particular people. For those who were given to him out of the world. And when we're tempted to kick against what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand, first of all, does anybody deserve Jesus to pray for them? Nod your head, no. What do we all deserve? We deserve hell. Okay? So nobody deserves Jesus to pray for them. Nobody deserves Jesus to be their representative. And and let me also say this. Do any of those for whom Jesus does not pray and does not represent, do they want Jesus to represent them? They don't. In fact, dare I say, they don't want Jesus as their defense attorney They want Jesus on trial. And they want Him convicted. And they want Him executed. And in case you're not sure of that, you just need to read the rest of the Gospel of John. Because that's exactly what the world does. They stick Him on a Roman cross and they publicly execute Him. And that is exactly what the world would desire to do today to the true Jesus. They don't want him as their representative, as their defense attorney. They want him executed. And so Jesus specifies who he's praying for. He's praying for those who had been given to him by the Father. Now, now I know some of you are probably thinking, Matt, here we go again. You're going to talk about election and those given ones. I'm just following the words of Jesus here, okay? Okay. He's the one who repeats this phrase, given ones, over and over throughout this prayer. So I'm just trying to unfold who these given ones are. And if you have a better explanation for who the given ones are, you're welcome to try to share it with me and convince me that they're not those who are given by the Father to the Son for the Son to lay down His life for. We see that these given ones in John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so what we see here in beautiful clarity is one of the offices of Christ. One of the questions we ask our young people is, what offices has Christ? Christ has the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so what we see here is the office of Jesus as priest, as intercessor, as go-between, as mediator between God and and the people of God. And his mediation is specific towards those people, those covenant people. 
He is praying on behalf of his own people. And so this makes sense. And if if you were to tease this out in your thinking, this is a good evidence for uh, not only the particular prayer of Jesus, which is based off of the particular redemption of Jesus. That he died for his own people and he intercedes based upon that propitious sacrifice. John Gill, the English Baptist Puritan, says, For whom he is the propitiation, he is an advocate. And for whom he died, he makes intercession. And for no others in a spiritual saving way. And so this, this, this is to be a great encouragement to the believer. That Jesus is praying, and he's not praying just a kind of general, vague, amorphous blob of prayer. I pray for everybody. No, he's praying for his own. And dare I say, he even prays for individuals specifically. He intercedes for his own people. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of your struggles. He prays, we see in the Gospels, remember, that he tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And indeed, although Peter falls down on the boat, he doesn't fall over the boat. He doesn't fall overboard. He does fall greatly and denies the Lord, but he doesn't turn away from the Lord like Judas does. Because Jesus prayed for him. Isn't it often a great encouragement when somebody tells you, I'm praying for you. To know that you're being sustained by the prayers of another believer. In fact, Charles Spurgeon uh, almost dramatically says, Oh, may God help me if you cease to pray for me. Let me know the day and, and I must cease to preach. Let me know when you intend to cease your prayers and I shall cry, Oh my God, give me this day my tomb. Let me slumber in the dust. I'm ready to die. Spurgeon says, he's telling his congregation, when you guys stop praying for me, let me know because then I'll be ready to die. And so if we can gather great joy and encouragement and gladness in God when we know that we are being sustained by the intercessions and pleadings of other believers, how much more our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ? Because all of his prayers are answered. He always, the Father always hears the cries of His Son. And He always responds positively. He prays pardon for His own. We see this in Romans chapter 8. And verse 34, 35, that... Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is him who died, who rose from the dead and intercedes at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate who pleads our pardon so that any time we sin against the Lord, which is regularly, Jesus 
intercepts that sin, says, I I pray for their forgiveness based upon my propitious sacrifice, but he also prays for the perseverance of his own, that they would continue in the faith, that they would continue in union with him and finish the race to the end. Jesus prays. And this guarantees our security. Our protection. Notice in verse 9, the second part, Jesus prays for these, these ones who had been given to him, and, and then it's highlighted why he prays for them and not for the world. At the end of verse 9, for they are yours. They are the precious possession of the Father. And then, notice verse 10, there's this kind of mutual inter-Trinitarian possession of these given ones in verse 10. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. In other words, this is a, this is a mutual intra-Trinitarian operation here of the Father setting His love upon His own elect people, and the Son dying for that people. And we can mix in the Holy Spirit here then, applying salvation to that people. All three persons of the Trinity working for the joy and eternal salvation of God's particular people. So this means that your eternal security is wrapped up within the Trinitarian God. And it's based upon Him and not you. That is for your joy. Because I know some of you, and if it was dependent upon you... It wouldn't last very long. In fact, even think of the, the arrogance of the person thinking that you could lose your salvation and yet you haven't. That means that I've been keeping myself. I've been praying for myself. No. Yes, you should pray for yourself. Yes, you should persevere. But you need to understand you are kept by the prayers of Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. You are in the grip of Jesus and the Father. You can often measure a person's strength by the strength of their grip. Grip strength. You've seen those spring things, you know, to kind of work on your grip. The grip of the Almighty God is what keeps His own. Jesus, again, He's praying this out loud. Why? So that in the midst of the reality of this fallen world and all the, as Newton wrote, we, we travel through many dangers, toils, and fears. We can appreciate the sentiment of Robert Robertson, the, 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 the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God, I, the God I love. But then to know that Jesus prays for you. That you would persevere. This should give you great joy, my friends. And this is indeed 
evidence of the heart of Jesus that he loves his own. He, he prays for you. This is evidence that the Father loves you, that Jesus says they are yours. They're your prized possession. You love them, you care for them. Also, there's a warning here because Jesus says he doesn't pray for everybody. He says, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those, these given ones. Who he says earlier, they were in the world, but you've given me, them to me out of the world. We were all once part of the world, and it's rebellion against God, but some had been given out of the world to Jesus. And so this means that some will either have Jesus as their defense attorney, a defense attorney on the day of judgment, and others will have Jesus as their prosecuting etern- attorney. I can't say that word, attorney. And the question is, which will it be? You need Jesus as your defense attorney. You need him as the one who laid down his life for you. Or you are in big trouble with the law. On our recent Bible camp trip to North Carolina, I might have gotten myself in trouble with North Carolina law for driving a little bit over the speed limit. Evidently it was more than a little bit. Because it was a mandatory court appearance. And North Carolina isn't exactly a hop, skip, and a jump away. So I had to get some representation. (laughs) Somebody to stand before me, before the law of the state of North Carolina, and to plead my case, lest I be found contempt of court. And lose my driver's license. Friend, you need a defense attorney. You need someone to stand as your representative. One who has lived a perfect life. Who has laid down his life on behalf of sinners. Trust in Jesus. Don't, Don't delay. Don't be so foolish as to think you can represent yourself in the courtroom of God. As if God's going to look at your filthy rags of righteousness. Tainted with all of their sin. And he's going to wink at your sins. No, my friend. He is a just and righteous God. You need a perfect representative. And it's found in Jesus through his death and his resurrection. Turn to him. Trust in Jesus. So, first, robust truth for your joy is the particular prayer of Jesus. But secondly, the particular purpose. Perhaps you saw this at the end of verse 10. When Jesus speaks of those whom he's praying for, these, these disciples. And he says at the end of verse 10, he says, And I have been glorified in them. In them. In these disciples. Now, we might look at that at first glance and say, Jesus, are you sure about that? (laughs) Have you really been glorified in them? 
I mean, think about the disciples. They were ordinary men with ordinary weaknesses. Peter, the impulsive, impetuous Peter, constantly putting his foot in his mouth, rebuking Jesus on different occasions. Thomas, the skeptic, Jesus rises from the dead. I won't believe till I see the scars in his hands and his feet. Philip lacked spiritual perception. How about James and John? One of the, the author of this book, John, right? They're traveling through Samaria. Nobody's opening their home, extending any hospitality to Jesus and the disciples. Jesus can we nuke them? Can I call down fire from heaven and we watch them burn and roast marshmallows over them? Come on, Jesus! Come on! James and John. And of course, like Peter, whose name means rock, just several hours from now, they're not so rock-like. They abandon Jesus in the moment of his greatest trial and weakness. They run. But not before Peter lops off somebody's ear. Not only that, I, I mean, it, it was just on this evening that they were all fighting and bickering with one another. About what? About who will sit at Jesus' right hand in His coming glory? That group, Jesus says, I have been glorified in them. Despite all their weaknesses and shortcomings, obviously it wasn't through these weaknesses and sins and pride that Jesus was glorified. But you see, Jesus is able to see things often that we're not able to see. See, John and James, they were not perfect, but they were bold for the truth. They did love Jesus. In fact, even as we see this gospel unfold, it's often that disciple whom Jesus loved, who I believe is the Apostle John, who's lying on the chest of Jesus, trying to get as close to him as he can. Peter, despite all of his shortcomings, in all of his recklessness, did he not have passion for Jesus and a love for his Savior? Andrew had a heart for the lost. Despite these men and all of their weakness and shortcomings, they did image God the Almighty. They did bear fruit. And that was how they glorified God. In fact, Jesus Himself in John 15, he says, It is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. These disciples did have fruit in their lives. Even if sometimes it looked like little tiny grapes. They had glorified Jesus. Now, this is hugely significant. Because this, again, Jesus is praying this for their joy. 
he's highlighting that they indeed had glorified him, but this is zeroing in on the very purpose for which these disciples exist and for which they were saved and for the very reason that they take every breath. And it is the very same reason for which you exist and which you have been saved and and the very reason for which you draw every breath. Namely, to give honor and glory to this great God. To image Him in this fallen world. Now this is huge because this enables us to live above all of our mundane, tiny little purposes in this world that bring us no joy. Friend, you could live for the next Facebook like, but you'll just be miserable. You can live to be on the homecoming court. You can live for the next job promotion. You can live for the next fleeting pleasure in this fallen world. And all these will fade. And at the end of it all, it will just bring misery and sorrow. Or you can also live for a greater purpose. To glorify this great God in this fallen world. In the midst of, yes, all of our little small mundane tasks and purposes in this world. In the midst of folding clothes, you can image this great God and glorify Him. In the midst of doing your math work, you can glorify this great God by imaging Jesus. In the midst of whatever you do in your workplace, as you clock in and you do that work for eight hours, ten hours a day, in the midst of the monotony of it all, you can honor this great God. In the midst of your parenting and the the constant dealing with the whining and the bickering and the complaining, you can honor and glorify God in how you respond to it. You can live for a purpose that is far greater than who you are. Namely, to glorify this great God. Friend, I summon you to live for this greater purpose. It is for your joy. The planets orbit around the sun. The sun... Yes, I'm not a flat earther. The sun is the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of our universe. We orbit our lives around Him. It is for your, glo- for your joy and for His glory that you live for that purpose. The moon was intended to reflect the light of the sun. The moon does not generate its own light. It merely reflects and humbly does so. And we are to reflect the glory of God and to honor Him as we image Him in this fallen world. 
So that's the particular prayer Jesus prays for these given ones, the particular purpose. They have glorified his name. And now, thirdly, a particular protection. And certainly this is rooted in the first two. A particular protection. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. They they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name in which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them, but the son of perdition, uh, not one of them perished, but the son of perishing, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So Jesus here, he, he's speaking uh, proleptically here. And, and this is evidenced by this phrase in verse 11, I am no longer in the world. And what I mean by prolect, proleptically, he's speaking as if the cross is already a done deal. He's done that earlier on in this prayer when he says, the hour has come, I have glorified your name. Okay, he's speaking as if the cross is a done deal, as if the cross and the resurrection. So he says, I'm no longer in the world. Now obviously if you're one of the disciples listening in, you say, that's strange, you are in the world. Again, Jesus is praying as if what he's going to do is a done deal. I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. This world that he's already described in chapter 15 and 16 that hates him and that hates any follower of his. They're in this world. And this world wants to chew them up and spit them out. This world with all of its unbelief and all of its temptation, they're in this world. He's going to say later on, they're in this world, but they're not of this world. But nonetheless, they're in this world. And so Jesus prays. This is really the first petition or request of this prayer. Of chapter 17, he says... I come to you, Holy Father. Jesus is approaching the Father's throne. And here's his prayer. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus is saying, I... I'm no longer in this world. I'm going to leave. And he's praying for the Father to keep them. To keep them in his name. Now, name in the Bible uh, often speaks of a person's character or sometimes their reputation. I think in this context, it's speaking of of God's character and his authority. Uh, We see this often throughout the Bible that, that the person's name is kind of synonymous with their character. Right? We see like... Jacob, he's, he's called Jacob because he's a, he's a deceiver, he's a conniver. Um, we see this with uh, even Moses, you know, his name means drawn out of water. That was the, part of his character. He was delivered out of water and he would be the one who would be the instrument to deliver the, the Hebrews out of water, namely through the Red Sea. We see this with Peter. Jesus changes, you know, Peter uh, changes Simon's name to Peter Rock because this was what he was going to make him as as a as a stable leader and foundation in his church. 
And so here, Jesus prays, Father, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them according to your character, according to your attributes, your power, your love, your faithfulness. God, keep them according to who you are. Which again, think of this. This means that if if God doesn't keep them, then maybe he's not as powerful as he says he is. Or if he doesn't keep them, maybe he's not faithful to his promises. Or if he doesn't keep them, maybe he's not loving. But all those are not true. So Jesus prays, keep them according to your name because of who you are. Keep them in your grip. And then he, he says that the result or even the purpose of this that they may be one as we are one. Now I want, don't want to belabor this too much because this is going to come up uh, again in this prayer and we'll touch on it more later but, uh, more later. but the idea here is that, that there is a unity of believers. Oftentimes people proof text John 17 as a reason why you know, we need to deny all of our doctrinal distinctives and come together, uh, anybody who names the name of Christ and sing Kumbaya together. I, I don't think that's what Jesus means here. This unity is there. This unity is already there for all believers. Arthur Pink on this says... And is it not still true that among the real people of God, despite all the minor differences, there's still real, a real, fundamental, and blessed underlying unity? That they all believe God's word is inspired, inerrant, of final authority. They all believe in the glorious person and rest upon the all-sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all aim for the glory of God. They all pant for the time when they shall forever be with the Lord. One as we shows the union that here prayed for is a divine, spiritual, intimate, invisible, unbreakable one. And this is the result. When this keeping power of the Father keeps them in the fold. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them. And this keeping keeps them persevering the faith, keeps them living for Jesus, keeps them loving Jesus, keeps them living for His glory, and keeps them for all eternity. And that brings about a oneness or a unity so much that if someone departed from the faith, there's no longer unity. There's no longer oneness. We don't believe the same things. We don't live for the same God. We don't have the same standards of right and wrong. And then Jesus says here in verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Again, notice the, the harmony between the Father and the Son. Jesus was keeping these sheep in the Father's name while he was with them on the earth. Your name which you have given me, I, here's another term, it's different than keep, it's guarded. I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. One commentator comments on these two words, keeping and guarding. Jesus uses two different Greek words for keeping and guarded. The first speaks of protection by means of restraint and carries the idea of preserving and watching over. 
It is often used in John's gospel to refer to keeping God's word or his commands. The second refers to protection from outside dangers. It is a safeguarding used in Luke to picture the strong man who guards the house. Taken together, the words give a picture of complete deliverance from all perils, lasting security. The son asked the father to secure his disciples knowing that the father's, this is the father's will. The omniscient son always prayed for perfect, in perfect agreement with his father. The work of securing his people is a Trinitarian work. So there's this guarding, there's this keeping. This past week we were at the Gulf of Mexico and we have a three-year-old in our home. And she wanted to just dive in the ocean, you know. She did have a, one of those life preserver vests on. And regularly I would have to hold her hand with an ironclad grip. But sometimes I would let her go just to give her a little bit of freedom. But even while I let her go and wasn't keeping her, I was still guarding her. Watching Watching every wave that would come off the horizon. Watching for sharks. What am I going to do against a shark, right? But acting like I actually have protective power in her life. But you get the point. This is, this is the Father and Jesus guarding, watching, keeping, protecting, making sure that His own are guarded and protected. Now this is huge because... This means that there is nothing that comes into your life that God does not permit for your good. That He is constantly in the midst of all the temptations all around you. He's keeping you. He's guarding you. He's watching over you. So much that it says here, not one of them perished, Jesus says here. In verse 12. Not one of them perished. And then He clarifies And there's a play on words here in the original. It's not as clearly seen in the English. Not one of them perish, but the son of perishing. The son of perdition. And this phrase, son of perishing, the phrase or the idiom in son of often is used in the scripture as an idiom for one who is in the category of. Uh, You think of Ephesians 2, those who are sons of disobedience or sons of wrath, those who are in the category of disobedience, those who are in the category of being objects of God's judgment. And here he uses it, the one who's in the category of perishing, the one who's destined to destruction. And then this ending phrase of verse 10, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You say, well, okay, Jesus is praying here. He's praying for God to protect his own. But again, remember, he knows that his, his disciples are listening in, right? And they're listening in, and, 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 and so he's qualifying, he's clarifying that one of them had just departed from their midst, right? He had just gone out to betray Jesus. He's going to be there the next morning with Roman soldiers Kissing Jesus to identify him as the one whom the Roman soldiers are to arrest. And so Jesus wants his own disciples to know, yeah, that schmuck wasn't one of us. I don't want you to think, Jesus is saying, 
that I failed to keep all that the Father has given me. I kept all of them. This one was not one of those given ones. He is a son of perishing. Now again, this is important because Jesus is saying, he's praying out loud for your joy. And if you think Judas lost his salvation, well, you should be biting your nails at this point. You think you're better than Judas? No. And so Jesus prays this to clarify, no, no, he wasn't lost from my grip. He was never given to me. This was so that the scripture would be fulfilled, probably referring to Psalm 69, which was a, a psalm about Ahithophel betraying David, which Ahithophel becomes a type or a picture of Judas betraying the future son of David. In other words, this was all according to God's plan. This didn't throw Jesus or the Father off guard. Perhaps this crass illustration might help. Imagine you are at an amusement park and you're getting on the ride of this amusement park and you're kind of gazing at the huge hills and the loops and the bends and you're starting to feel yourself get nauseous as you anticipate these things in your life. And the person who is uh, the worker of the ride says that... um, We have never lost any person on this ride who uses our seat belts and security mechanisms. And immediately, you remember last week, you were reading in the newspaper about how somebody fell off this ride and plunged to their death. And so, you raise your hand and say, okay, uh, what about that person last week? And the worker of the ride says, oh, yeah, they actually didn't have their seatbelt on, and they were standing and dancing in the middle of the ride doing a selfie video of themselves, and then fell off the ride and plunged to their death. So, all right. I'm good. Strap me in. (laughs) Okay, it's a bad illustration, but you get the point. Judas was the guy who fell out of the roller coaster, okay? And his disciples needed to know that he wasn't one of those given ones. That Jesus doesn't lose any. And dare I say, to suggest that Jesus does is an assault against the glory of Jesus. That Jesus failed in his task to make sure all those the Father had given him crossed the finish line. He loses none, He is the victor. His death, burial, and resurrection adequately paid for all the sins of everyone who would ever believe. His prayers guarantee their perseverance. And Jesus says this for their joy and for your joy. The departure of of Judas could have been a great source of anxiety for the disciples. As no doubt, people who have turned away from the Lord in your own life have put a lump in your own throat. 
Sometimes even church leaders, pastors abandon the faith and it leaves multitudes confused, (laughs) discouraged, downcast. But Jesus wants us to know all those given ones he keeps, none of them will perish. He finishes the job. Now, the the strange irony here is that the disciples, and especially Peter himself, thought that he was the one keeping Jesus. But Jesus was the one keeping him. We get evidence of that later on in the next chapter when the guards come out to apprehend Jesus and Peter's sword comes forth and he starts hacking away. Jesus, I'm going to protect you. Little did he know it was Jesus who was protecting him. Remember, Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And not long after that hand-to-hand combat that Peter engaged in, he was cowering before a little girl who was asking him if he was a follower of Jesus. And his fear of man eclipsed his fear of Jesus and he denied that he knew the man three times. But Jesus was still keeping Peter. Despite his shortcomings and failure, he was keeping Jesus. R.C. Sproul says, imagine a father walking beside a railroad track with his three-year-old son. There's danger at hand. So the father holds his child's hand. If the boy's safety depends upon the strength of his grasp of the father's hands, he is in grave danger. He could lose his grip, wander into the path of the train. What keeps the child from destruction is not the boy's grip on the father's hand, but the father's grip upon the child's hand. That is the boy's grip on his father's hand, but the father's grip on the child's hand. That is what Jesus is asking the father to do, to keep his grip on the disciples. And Jesus prays this out loud for your joy. So that you would know in the midst of perhaps deteriorating health, job loss, economic upheaval, a world in which the, the modern media, you don't even know what to believe. But Jesus prays for the Father to keep his own. And the Father delightfully and gladfully keeps and guards all of his own. And make sure, as Jesus prays at the end of this prayer, they would see the glory of Jesus in eternity to come. God watches and keeps. And this is, again, for your joy. Isn't it the most wonderful thing in the world to be a Christian? 
to be safe in the Father's grip, to be safe in Jesus' grip, so that no matter what craziness you encounter in this world, you can have an inner peace and joy. He's not letting go of you. There's a rite of passage amongst, so the legend says, amongst the Cherokee Indians of how a boy enters into manhood. This boy is taken out in the middle of the night, blindfolded. He's supposed to be out there in the woods overnight. He's not allowed to tell anybody about this experience. And he's to sit there in the middle of the night in the midst of all the dangers, the howling of the wild animals, potential other enemy nations around them. And he's to sit there throughout the night. He's not allowed to take off the blindfold until he sees the sun peeking through the blindfold in the morning. And when the morning sun rises and that young person sees the sunlight creeping through the blindfold, he takes off his blindfold and he looks beside him and his father is sitting right next to him. Christian, you may not see the Father or Jesus incarnate beside you in the midst of this dark world, but you can know He's watching and He's keeping and He's doing so for your joy. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise You, Holy Father. We praise You, Holy Jesus. We praise You, Holy Spirit. for this amazing truth that we see in this prayer. That you prayed out loud, Jesus, so that John would record it, so that we here in July of 2022 could hear and believe and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so, Lord, help us to respond with the appropriate measure of joy in whose name we pray, our King Jesus. Amen. We will close in song and then Pastor Keith will come up for the benediction.